Matt Whitaker, former U.S. Acting Attorney General. This is such a great conversation about America, our future, what's going to save our republic. We have a great football player. Matt Whitaker is here. Matt. They tried to bury me. They didn't realize I was a C. Former Acting U.S. Attorney General. Under President Trump. I'm going to be an unwavering supporter of law enforcement. Welcome to Liberty and Justice with your host, Matt Whitaker. Welcome to Liberty and Justice, Season 3, presented by American Cornerstone Institute. Uh, My guest this week is Kevin Hassett, the former chairman for President Trump of the Council of Economic Advisors. Kevin, how are you, my friend? Oh, it's uh, great to be back with you, Matt. Well, you know, you are one of the fan favorites on this show, and um, last week's show with uh, Cash Patel like knocked the records off, so we are on a rocket fuel, so I'm expecting big things out of you. Well, Cash is a better draw than me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm expecting you to to like take some big swings here, but um, I guess, you know, just as we get into it, why don't, why don't, you know, there's a lot of back and forth on the current economy. And if it's good, if it's bad, there's, you know, obviously the stock market's setting records. Where, how would you evaluate uh, the current state of the U.S. economy? It's a, it's a great question. And it's something that uh, I've been sort of puzzling over, really, over the last six months, because there's so many, like, really damaging economic policies uh, and, you know, pretty aggressive Fed tightening. They started late that one would really expect the economy to be kind of on the ropes right now. And, um, you know, part of financial markets are saying that's what it looks like to us, too. So, for example, um, I was just checking uh, today the federal funds futures. Remember, the federal funds rate is the thing the Fed uses to, you know, control interest rates. Well, they're saying that the Fed is going to start cutting in June and then it's going to keep cutting all the way through December which seems kind of odd because at the same time, the Atlanta Fed puts out like first quarter GDP estimates called GDP now. And those have been hovering around 3%, which is a nice solid quarter. Uh, inflation stays pretty high right now. Uh, if you look at the latest numbers, one way, you know, sometimes the, the media kind of hides uh, the ball on inflation because they'll look at like the change relative to 12 months ago. But really what you should do is look at the last few months and then say, suppose we stay there. Right. And, yeah. and, and so uh, if you had a really big inflation month uh, 11 months ago, then when we move forward, you know, that all of a sudden it drops out of the average. And then, you know, it looks like inflation's getting better, but it's not. And so if you look at inflation data, that's it's looking pretty rough. It's, it's pretty high. I'd say it's running almost at a 5 percent rate. There's this thing called a super core uh, which it sounds like your work only economists, right? my friend. Only economists, <laughs> but, but it's like one of the Fed's favorite measures is, is something called Supercore, and uh, Supercore inflation is running like at about six percent now. Um, you know, over over the last month, and and so I'd say that the the economy is doing better than most people expected, uh, but it feels like the market is sure it's going to end, uh, and that the Fed's going to have to start cutting rates in in the summer. Um, I think the Fed can't cut rates in the summer because we're going to be sort of slogging along with inflation still high and a little bit of growth, you know, not in recession territory. And so then the the final question, uh, Matt, not to, to go on. Uh, oh, I love this stuff. Uh, I, I love the dismal science, my it's friend. It's like, where, where, does it, where does it come from? And one of the things that you remember uh, when you took a freshman economics class, they said, well, you know, in the short run, if the government spends a heck of a lot of money, 
then you can get some GDP out of it. And I think that one of the reasons why uh, we're doing a little better than expected is the government's been spending so much more than we expected. And the problem is that at some point, you know, we're going to have to pay for that. And when we do, there's going to really be quite a reckoning. Yeah, there's so much to unpack there. And, you know, my you, you really gave me a good uh, roadmap that I'd already uh, rolled out here. But if you're if you're the Fed chairman, let's put, you know, pretend you're the Fed chairman and you have raised rates to probably as high as they've been. Maybe in a generation. I'm, I'm thinking we have to go back to like well, it's twenty. If you think twenty years is a generation, then yeah, yeah it's, you yeah. know. So yes, twenty years. Let's call okay. it twenty years a generation. Yeah. I guess my point is, um, you would have expected a lot more uh, of the economy to 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 be on the brakes and to be kind of skidding, slowing down. Indications of slowing down. Instead, you still have, to your point, on the super core inflation and really the PPI and every other measure. There is still above targeted inflation. I mean, there's no doubt about that, you know, as the Fed has to have their dual um, purpose of, you know, uh, full employment and the uh, 2% uh, inflation rate. And, you know, so it's just, I mean, it seems to me that I guess you can either try to fit it in the traditional story, right? Or something new is happening. Now, I, I caught you on the TV recently, I think it was you, trying to credit maybe artificial intelligence with some of this. Yeah. Yeah. In uh, fact, I just wrote an article about, about that at national review. Um, and, uh, the, the thing is that, uh, there are a lot of really smart people out there like Eric Schmidt, Bill Gates that are saying that AI is going to be bigger than the internet in terms of the way it affects the economy. And, um, I have a colleague out at, uh, Stanford, uh, Eric Brindelson, uh, who's really, you know, he's got to get a Nobel Prize. He's he's the leading student of sort of how digital things affect the economy. He used to be an MIT professor and Stanford stole him, like, probably with the weather. Um, <laughs> and, and the fact is that he's starting to do some really fascinating work that's showing that uh, when companies bring an AI firm in, to help them think about how to do stuff, then their productivity skyrockets just like in a month or two uh, across a wider range range of industries like uh, computer programming is one and 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 call centers, um, you know, customer service type things. Yeah. That the productivity is going up like twenty percent. And and the interesting thing too about this uh, is that I'm going to talk about what that twenty percent means. Is that they're also finding that AI is taking uh, increasing the productivity of the lower skill people in the firm. And uh, my intuition for that is that if like a computer AI uh, were to uh, try to improve the chess of Magnus uh, Carlsen, the world champion, then it could probably do it. But if it improved my chess, it would improve a lot more, right? <laughs> right. No, <laughs> you know, and, and so anyway, so but with that productivity going up like that, then it could be one reason in addition to the higher government spending why uh, the economy is surprising on the upside is, yeah, this is just what happened. Do you remember uh, when uh, Netscape introduced Navigator? Uh, it was almost exactly 30 years ago. Then the internet, nobody was using the internet, right? And, and I still yeah. had a typewriter when I was in college, right? The, the, literally, I, I was so thrilled. I got an electric typewriter instead of a manual one. And, and so the point is just that, that markets and economists kept being surprised and beginning in 1995, there were five years in a row where the uh, S&P 500 went up about 30% a year. Uh, and that happened, I think, because the Internet kept doing amazing things. 
and making big winners and losers. And I think the AI is going to be bigger and potentially faster. And, you know, that'll have political consequences, too, because what it means is like all the terrible policies that we've got right now that should be really hammering the economy. Maybe we're going to luck out and it won't because AI is producing so much uh, productivity and, and advancement for firms out there. I'd hate to bail out some of these terrible decisions made by politicians though, along that line. But, I mean, you saw where uh, Sam Altman, the, the head of OpenAI that has ChatGPT, suggests that they're going to have to invest or, you know, he wants to invest like $7 trillion in chip manufacturing to, to power uh, all of this artificial intelligence. It's Again, we could go down the AI rabbit hole for a long time here, and someday this show will just be um, – We'll program our computers to have Matt and Kevin have a conversation, and we won't even have to participate. All right? I, I actually do that. Like, I don't know if you if you do that, but uh, I, I, I like. I don't, I like but tell to, me. No, I, I I like to ask the AIs and uh, you know ChatGPT is one of them to answer like a question as if. Uh, yes, you asked. did that. You did that to me uh, when we were together recently. I remember, right? Yeah. Yes. And, and, and no, somehow it had no derogatory wrong. information remember, about you. That was yeah. one of my things. What did Kevin has to do wrong? And at one point it said nothing. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Kevin has his own wife. AI that is a fanboy. Um, why don't you talk just a little bit about, I know uh, the, the Fed chairman just recently sort of criticized the fiscal policy of the United States of America, says that, you know, sort of the U.S.'s fiscal policies, house is not in order, you know, deficit spending, um, you know, just uh, debt, uh, $34 trillion, whatever the number, it's a, a staggering number. Right. Um, you know, in monetary policy, we talked a little bit about that, but like talk about the interplay. Is, is, is part of what's happening right now that interplay of, of too much government spending with, you know, kind of uh, a, a monetary policy that was maybe too accommodative uh, up until, you know, the last six or eight months? I mean, where, what's the interplay there? And, and, and is, there any, mm -hmm. is there any dials that people can turn just to tune this in for a soft landing? Or, or is it suddenly going to come screeching to a, like a brick wall? You know, it's all, it's all really simple. And I can remember you and I were talking about it, like right when the Biden spending binge uh, began. And you remember I was saying in March of that year that inflation's going to take off. I even said it probably around 7% this year. And and the point is that it's not the, the like, you know, I, I deserve a Nobel Prize for figuring out that inflation's going to go up because it's so simple. It's just kind of funny that so many people have missed it. But here's here's the way to think about it. Like, suppose that we're, we're basically we have a certain amount of supply, uh, you know, and and like so we have we have an apple tree that gives us 10 apples a year. And then the government says, hey, we're going to spend more money on apples next year. But the apple tree still makes 10 apples. Then when we spend more money on apples, then what happens is that, you know, nominal GDP goes up by the extra spending. Say we borrow money from the Chinese and increase our apple yeah. expenditure, but we still only have 10 apples. And so the difference is inflation. And so if you don't get supply going up while demand is going up, so if the government say hey, we're going to spend a lot more money, that if supply doesn't go up too, then you're just going to get inflation. And the problem is that if you go back and, and look at what was going on at, at the beginning of this administration, that there were a lot of sort of anti-supply uh, policies that, you know, sure didn't stimulate extra supply. So if you got a big increase in, in demand, how much you're spending on apples, but the trees still only make it that apples, then you get inflation. And, and the 7% call that, that I made, again, I think it was might have been May of that year for the, the year's uh, inflation rate, which was almost exactly what happened. That 7% call was really just doing the math of what we just said. 
You know, mm-hmm. it's just, okay, so the government's spending this much. What do I think is going to happen to supply? Okay, well, then inflation's got to go up. And, and, and that simple arithmetic worked. And, and so it's a, a way to think about what's going on now. Yeah. And, and, and so, uh, you know, the, the um, Tax Cuts of Jobs Act, uh, tax cuts, are some of them are expiring, um, which is putting, you know, a constraint on supply. There's a big increase in regulation that's putting a constraint on supply. And the government's spending a lot of money. Uh, yeah. And so that's a big stimulus for demand. I think that in the end, the way to think about it, though, is that eventually we have to pay. Yeah. Uh, and and it, it's kind of like, like, suppose you had a mortgage that lasted forever. Would that, would you make, you'd be happy about that? Or, or are you actually kind of glad that you get to pay it off, right? Like, but, but it is true that if you had a mortgage that lasted forever, you have a, you have probably a lower payment every month forever and ever. But the idea is just that the government is borrowing money short uh, and paying huge amounts of interest. And it's confident that it can borrow money short again next year, which is kind of like having a mortgage that you never pay off. But eventually, either way, you pay because you're either paying the mortgage forever or you're paying that monthly interest. And it's really, you know, stopping your uh, expenditure on other things or or you pay it back, uh, in which case you get to stop the future interest payments. But in present value, it's kind of kind of the same. And so this big, big debt that we've run up is a huge problem. It, it's big, big future taxes and future interest payments. And again, uh, interest expenditures are going to be bigger than defense spending, you know, right now. Uh, and, and so think about it. You know, we're spending more on interest to the Chinese. It's kind of the opposite of defense spending. <laughs> right? We're giving yeah. money to bondholders that are, that, you know, think uh, bad thoughts about us. Uh, and, and so, so it's, a, it's a real problem. And, and there's going to be a heck of a lot to clean up uh, when, you know, a new administration comes in and tries to reverse some of these policies. Yeah. With, I mean, to your point that those interest payments have no end in sight. I mean, they are just going to continue to climb. And, you know, again, we may be the, the best house in a bad neighborhood globally, uh, but at some point in time, uh, I don't think people are going to be willing to give us money at that price. I mean, we, you know, we've been able to take advantage of historically low interest rates. And now when they're starting to, to adjust and, and maybe uh, become more average, uh, to use a term that you probably <laughs> have used a lot in your career, I think I think that 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 is concerning. Let me ask you a question about... You know, I think the Before United States of America. I want to say one more thing about the interest. Yeah, go ahead, Kevin. Uh, which is just that because because you remember, like we worked together, uh, and and one of the like one of the curses of being Kevin Hassett is that you're always worried about everything that might go wrong, right? Yeah. And, and you can remember, uh, should like, have been a trial lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's right. Well, there, uh, it's uh, probably very similar. Maybe it's the curse of Whitaker is similar, but but the point is. <laughs> That one of the things that people don't understand about uh, defaults, actual defaults for governments, is that they don't happen. Like, so if Matt Whitaker were going to declare bankruptcy, you know, God, God forbid. But it, but it, but if you were, then what would happen would be you'd probably spend a year, you know, not quite paying your bills, struggling to make ends meet, having you know collection agencies call you up and harass you and stuff, and then finally you'd give up and say, I, I, I got to go to a bankruptcy court, I'm going to declare bankruptcy. But what happens uh, to governments? Is that they borrow a whole bunch of money from foreigners, usually, uh, at the ones that, that have default, it, with the idea that, like, okay, I, I borrowed a trillion dollars from the Chinese last year and that for one year, but now I got to borrow it again to pay them back. And then you have an auction and nobody shows up. 
Mm-hmm. And and so for some reason, like tomorrow, uh, we tried to borrow money uh, and everybody decided that they just they really understood the fiscal future of the U.S. was busted. Then we could have an auction tomorrow where we don't aren't able to borrow the money to pay people back. And, and, and so default could happen really, really fast. And it's not something like like the sort of personal bankruptcy that you'll see yeah. coming for months and months and months. And if you go back in the history of defaults, so there's been many, many government defaults, then they end up with a debt situation kind of like ours. And then all of a sudden people won't lend them money anymore. And and the good news is the U.S. is still the best place in the world. You know, like we go back to like the AI revolution happened here for a reason. And so people are still sending us capital but I'm not sure it's going to last forever, and it's sure something that I worry about. Well, you portended my next question, which is, yeah. you know, as um, really an entrepreneurship and innovation uh, beacon, uh, you know, we always have been. The U.S. has been able to grow their way out of a lot of problems uh, in the past, and you know, we could, t- we could probably we don't have enough time to talk about the manufacturing base, but but how do we protect that innovation, that entrepreneurship, that you know, sort of that goose that's laying the golden eggs right now for the United States of America. It's really interesting to think that we keep doing it, too. And so there's something really special about America. And, um, you know, you think of all the, the like really, really big new firms that, you know, have been popped up in the last few years with the AI revolution. You know, some of them were almost $100 billion, like little firms you'd never heard of. And NVIDIA, of course, closing into the trillions. Yeah. But the point is that the I think that that despite like all the political correctness and everything else, that our universities have attracted like the most brilliant minds on earth, you know, want to come here and go to places like Stanford and MIT and Iowa. And, and <laughs> you know, I'm just saying that the that if you look at or Purdue, think of all the great companies that have been started by immigrants who went to Purdue. You're talking about um, the new Big Ten, aren't you? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, that that I think that that ultimately that we've been a magnet for the world's greatest minds, and they've come here because of our universities, and and that's why we need to be so aggressive about protecting them in a way that I think that people have kind of failed to do. And I think everybody's kind of waking up to it. But if you look at, you know, Claudine Gay at Harvard and and the people that are being selected to lead our great institutions, it's definitely not a merit-based selection system anymore. And if you look at, uh, you know, kids who come out with PhDs these days, uh, there aren't a lot of professorships available for somebody unless they check some boxes. And, and so I do think that the thing that's kept us exceptional has been, you know, our education system, higher education system that attracts, you know, great minds, both domestic and foreign. And and, and think about it. You know, I gave, I gave a talk at Harvard a week ago Saturday, and this is this is a place that, that was founded in the 1600s. Right. So it's, it's not a new thing that, that we're one of the world leaders in higher education and that it's attracted a lot, a lot of people. Uh, and so I think that that's kind of where it came from. It's got to be. But the question of how do we protect it is we protect we got to defend the the sort of merit based university system. And we should also like resist the temptation to have government do anything about it. 
Like I, like like people talk about like going to the moon, you know, it gave us Tang, and I'm sure that there are some spinoffs and everything, but it's not the government that innovates. It's it, it's the private sector. And so and so when we think about how to do it, we should like continue to feed the private sector and defend our right. academic institutions. And stay out of the way and somehow exactly. figure out how to manage this national debt. Kevin, I just, you know, I, I get smarter when I spend time with you. Yeah. You know, every time I see you in person, we end up getting involved in some very nerdy question that I've been pondering in my, you know, reading of the Wall Street Journal and, and other, you yeah. know, while places. raising the toast too. We always seem to be finding the bar. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I, I just, I think you're, you're, you're a national treasure and I, I'm, I'm excited oh, that, uh, you know, you're obviously, uh, available and you're, you know, you're, you're not only a real person, you're a good guy. And it just, oh, I, yeah. I just, there's part of me that just like, it's so envious of like smart, nice oh, people. Cut I, it out, Mr. Attorney General, <laughs> sir. It's actually a question I have for you, which is just that it kind of feels like the rule of law is super under assault yeah. and it's something that you've been talking about. But on the other hand, our, our justice system historically has been able to defend itself against abuses and so on. And, and, and and so you know I like we 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 saw like uh, O'Leary said he's going to leave New York yeah. and all that kind of stuff and but but do you think that our justice system is robust enough that the sort of like a a few partisan people like ultimately mm -hmm. you know higher courts are going to discipline them I think the bar association should toss people out who use I'm not specifically talking about any one individual because I'm not sure. an expert but right. it feels like if somebody's abusing their government power. The, the the bar association should do something, but but do you think the justice system can defend itself, or do you think that really because that's another threat to the U.S. right? Like if we don't have the rule of law, then who's going to send their capital here? Because right. then somebody might just take it. Well, and if you think about you know to, to your point, that's you know that's one of the great advantages of doing business in the United States is you know that we do have courts that can handle these cases that you can get. Uh, just um, resolution of a case, you know, depending if you're on the right or on the wrong, and and you know it's like this idea, but. You know, I think there's been a leftward lurch of the bar and of lawyers, and that ideological shift has certainly infected, um, especially places like New York and Washington, D.C. and other places. And I don't know if we're strong enough um, because it's going to require some brave people, um, kind of in the tradition of, I guess, John Adams when he defended, you know, the Boston Massacre um, uh, folks. And, and I think it's going to take that level of of people saying, um, you know, we understand, we do not agree politically with, with a certain person. However, you know, we stand for the rule of law and we stand for uh, our legal traditions. But right now, you don't hear that. No one on the left is clamoring for the rule of law. <laughs> it is uh, more just a celebration of the targeting of individuals that they disagree with politically. It's it's a scary moment in American history. I mean, I. I see it for what it is, and I, I pray to God that if the shoe was on the other foot, I would be brave enough to speak out um, because where, I think that's what's going to take. Where do you think it comes take. from? Right, but so, so, so I'm kind of like a – anyway, I'm a Christian, but I'm also like I love sort of Eastern philosophy too. Mm -hmm. and, and, and at some point, like there's the yin and yang kind of thing where like if everybody's like really, really mad at you, then you should think about like, well, what did I do? Right. Right. And so where do you think this this like willingness to, to like so, so it, it could be that it, it just comes you know, exogenously, but or it could be something that, that you know, folks, the uh, you know, people who are, you know, free enterprise conservatives like like me and you that we could do better. But but what hmm. you know, is, is there a cause that you could think of? 
That's a hard um, question. Right? I, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, this is the first time in American history, Kevin, where the two parties have not shared the same goal for our country. Um, and I think that is it, that counter um, balance has, has somehow untethered, uh, you know, sort of the greatness of our country. And, and you know, I think that the existential threat that conservatives um, uh, appear to, you know, cause on the left, I think is something that has is still we're working through the bloodstream. I mean, you think about their radical, radical agenda and their inability to sort of suggest that um, that there is any moral absolutes that 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 not everything is relative. I mean, I, I it's, you know, I, it's we don't have enough time today to, to work through this. But I think there is a process uh, that we that we should and, and figure out the why, because I think you ask the most important question of what's going on right now in our country. I, I wrote it, it, and I know we're running uh, a little bit late, but but I wrote an article about this uh, in December for National Review, uh, and it was just to remind people because you know old timers like us actually have read the classics because that's what we used to do. Like back then, we didn't have the internet; we barely had TV, right? So you would read books instead and stuff like that. But we had to read books. It's all yeah, had. That's I didn't even. There was no cable I TV. Was, I mean, it was like you know, comic books and books. That's cartoons were on Saturday morning, so yes. But but in any case, um, the article was about like what Marx said. Uh, and if you think about it, that you know, I don't think that there are many. Uh, like, I have lots of friends that are uh, Democrats that, that you know really loved uh, voting for for President Biden, and and God bless them. You know, I mean, but but the point is just that that I don't think that they're Marxists. But I think that the universities, like a lot of them, have been taken over by the Marxists, and so it's important to go back and look at like what Marx said about what Marxists are. Uh, and, and I think that that in the end, like the future of our country could be saved if like we go back to having everybody agree that like the Marx, Marxist objectives are wrong. Uh, but but here's what Marx said. Marx said it's wrong for the left uh, to focus on inequality and to redistribute. Isn't that interesting? He said that. Yeah. And he said, because if you do that, then you preserve the institutions that create the inequality in the first place. And so the Marxist objective is to destroy our institutions, to destroy the institutions that made our country what it is, uh, to make, you know, free enterprise or capitalism, as he, as he would say. And, and, and so I think if you think about it as like there, there are people out there who want to destroy our institutions uh, and that that's actually their ultimate objective, then a lot of stuff starts to make a little bit more sense. Uh, and, and I kind of hope the, the people of every party kind of think about that. As we're looking looking ahead, because we don't want to destroy our institutions, we want to preserve them, prove them, but not destroy them. But I think that there are a lot of things out there that are targeted towards destruction yeah. of institutions, including you know maybe appointing a, a university president who's a plagiarist. Like, what better way to degrade the caliber of like people's respect for that institution? Right. All right, we'll leave it at that. Kevin Hassett, thank okay, you so Matt. much. It's good to see you, my good friend. To see you too. Uh, this is, uh, you're watching Liberty and Justice. I'm your host, Matt Whitaker. This is always uh, presented by American Cornerstone Institute. And we'll be back next week. Liberty and Justice.